Okay, this is Jeff Nyquist, and this is the JRNyquist.com Daily Podcast, and with me uh, is my special guest, Michael Del Rosso. He is a research fellow in national security policy at the Claremont Institute, and a senior fellow for Homeland and National Security at the Center for Security Policy. He also happens to be the chairman of the IEEE-USA Critical Infrastructure Protection Committee. And I want to give a welcome to you, Michael. Thanks for coming and joining us. Well, hi, Jeff. Yeah. Uh, you know, it's uh, the thing we're going to talk about today, of course, is the foundations of our existence here as Americans as a country. And I, I, I'm going to make two points to start out with. I think that Americans forget that they're members of a tribe or a nation and that they forget what their existence as a nation depends on, that their existence actually hangs in the balance and a nation is... Uh, a much more potentially fragile thing than people realize, especially in this age of mass destruction weapons. Oh, that, that's very true. And uh, if you if you really don't uh, understand who you are, you don't understand why uh, what you are needs to be protected. And if, and if you're not willing to protect yourself, then who's going to protect you? Yeah, and, and of course, uh, we've got the situation where missiles from Russia or China, and I just saw a report recently saying that that in a couple of years, Russia and China are going to have nuclear superiority over us, uh, which was kind of shocking. Uh, but it's true, they're modernizing. They're building these uh, mobile ICBMs. We're not doing anything with ours. In fact, there's some question about the actual viability of our warhead stockpile, since we haven't had testing of warheads for many years now. It's almost it's in a couple of years. It's going to be almost two decades since we've tested a warhead. We've got this virtual testing on computers. And, of course, um, there's been infrastructure problems with our, uh, our, our nuclear weapons industry over the past two decades. Well, we're actually doing a lot with our uh, – America's doing a lot with their nuclear missiles. They're dismantling them. So uh, most people don't realize that the, the most advanced land-based ICBM we uh, used to have, I should say, was the Peacekeeper, the, the uh, MX system that Carter tried to kill and then Reagan implemented. Uh, we actually dismantled the last of those missiles in September of 2007. And right now, the uh, vanguard of our land-based ICBM force are Minuteman three missiles that are over 40 years old. And meanwhile, incredible. Meanwhile, for a decade, the Soviets, who we give billions of non-Lugar money to, uh, I think like every six weeks they roll out a new uh, com- uh, new complement of Topol MSS 27s, uh, which now they have fielded in uh, land. Uh, submarine-based, and road mobile. And, and that is truly the most advanced ICBM in the world. It's the most accurate. Uh, it has uh, anti-ballistic missile uh, system countermeasures. And um, and we're not building anything. We're dismantling. It is, it is shocking. And, of course, a lot of this is all done under the belief that uh, Russia and China, well, there's not really a threat of nuclear war anymore, that their missiles are aimed at us. But Yet, why are the Russians continuing to modernize their nuclear forces if they don't see themselves in a nuclear competition with us? No. First of all, if you look at uh, uh, what happened in 1991, uh, it regards the uh, Soviet Union collapsing, it was really a controlled reorganization. And uh, recent uh, machinations the last five years with uh, uh, the many, many political assassinations inside and outside of Russia, uh, the uh, occasional strong-arm tactics that take place in um, <clears throat> in any kind of public display or even attempts at media. You know, the, so the media has been quelched effectively. Journalists have been assassinated. Political opponents have been assassinated. Uh, I, I, I don't know anyone that could successfully argue that 
the regime that came to power by force in 1917 has not had uninterrupted control of Russia and their strategic uh, weapons uh, since that time. 1991, uh, nothing to interrupt that. Yeah, the, the, the big thing people don't realize, the KGB never went away. The fact that it, it adopted the names of the of the uh, FSB and the SVR, uh, which were just the subgroup names of the KGB, it still remained. It still had tremendous power over politics. The files of the KGB, with all the blackmail potential over the Russian population, still remain. And its uh, its its connections to the black market economy, to organized crime, to the foreign terrorists and other groups overseas, the entire network, with all of its potential. It, it basically put its own man in power in uh, 1999, Vladimir Putin, and uh, before that, other former generals of the KGB had served as prime minister. And it, it really seems as if Drunken Boris was kind of a, a Potemkin sham put up for a period of years to get the West to sort of fall asleep, and the West fell asleep. Oh, they absolutely did. But, you know, we might even back up this conversation because... Um, the real uh, issue is that we don't know what it means to be Americans anymore. Yes. You know, Sun, Sun Tzu, it's a, uh, it's, uh, I'll paraphrase it, but he said, know your enemy and know yourself. And basically he ran through the three options. He said, if you know both, you'll win every battle. If, if you know yourself but don't know your enemy, you're going to win one, lose one. And if you know neither, you're really doomed. And America right now knows neither because we don't, you know, there's a, there's a, a quite a bit of uh, hate America first crowd that's been institutionalized in the, in the national security intelligence community bureaucracies, uh, as well as amongst politicians. And, uh, the, the schools have actually been dumbed down with a, with a breed of cultural Marxism in the last 70 years that really, um, uh, 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 makes people not even understand the, why America not only is is a good country, but it's probably it, it, it's 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 a it's a country with principles worth defending. Yeah, this is something hard for people to understand the, the changes that have happened in American education, and now that we've elected Barack Obama president, the fact that we've seen with the young people this shift, where we've been they've been taught for now for more than twenty years that Martin Luther King was the the greatest man in American history. Now think about George Washington, very little about Lincoln, but, but Martin Luther King, and we've got this multicultural education that in a very subtle, sinister way, I always felt this about multiculturalism when I first heard about it in the 1980s, was that it was a way of sort of preaching a subtle anti-Americanism and having it enter the curriculum and enter into the teaching of history so that people were taught more bad things about their country's history than the positive things. And they were taught more about who they weren't than who they were. And oh, uh, yeah, very much so. I mean, the education schools in America today they discourage and even disqualify prospective teachers. I know you've talked about this in your own academic experiences, but if these, if you lack the correct disposition, meaning if you really don't embrace the progressive uh, cultural Marxism in today's political catechism. Uh, you, you don't uh, uh, stand a chance in the educational establishment. The um, National Council for Accreditation of Teacher Education actually declared uh, uh, in their own writings that the, this professional uh, disposition is, quote, guided by beliefs and attitudes related to values such as caring, fairness, honesty, responsibility, and social justice, end quote. And, and, and social justice itself is, is a term coined by Marx, in terms of uh, uh, deconstructing capitalism, 
So, so nothing there about reading, writing, arithmetic. They really, what they're really trying to do is to quote, prepare individuals to be change agents. Well, it's really disturbing, and people don't understand. Well, what's wrong with Marxism? Isn't it a good idea? You know, this is what what people will throw up in your face. And you, to try to explain to people that Marxism as an ideology was created by a bad man. Karl Marx was a bad man, and was then propagated by other bad men, men who took over countries and killed tens, if not hundreds, of millions of people in the last century, in Russia, in Cambodia, Vietnam, Korea, Africa, you know, Cuba, all over the map, and and of course Russia. Uh, the fact is, is that if we if we somehow try to make that some kind of benign idea, when everywhere it's been tried, it's resulted in mass murder and dictatorship, the end of freedom, the end of liberty, then we do not understand that the fundamental idea of socialism, which is collective ownership of the means of production, is basically just a, just an excuse for taking people's freedom away. Because the ultimate freedom that you have, besides the freedom of speech, is the freedom to buy and sell. And if you don't have the freedom to buy and sell, the rest of your freedoms don't matter at all because you're a slave. Well, absolutely. And if you don't have even the, the concept of private property, you're a slave. But here, here, let me get back to the basics of American principles. Uh, all of America could be summed up in uh, in what what was embodied in the Declaration of Independence, which is a is a recognized legal document, and U.S. Code actually recognizes it as one of the one of the organic legal documents of the United States, and it was the document that actually created the United States of America. Prior to July Fourth, seventeen seventy six, uh, we were a collection of thirteen colonies in active rebellion against the Crown for a little over a year. But that document declared, no, 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 now we're actually a nation and we're calling ourselves the United States. And the very basis of that government was that all human beings are created equal with inalienable rights, meaning no one can take them away. And these natural rights that came from our our being creation created, it said that the, the governments are instituted amongst men to secure those rights, deriving the just power from the consent of the governed. So that, that simple statement uh, defines everything about the United States. And in fact, if you look at the Constitution and parse it word for word, you'll see that everything in the Constitution is a logical extension of that one idea. Where, whereas if you look at something like Marxism or any other kind of secular form of government, that's where a man gets together and decides uh, what rights someone can or cannot have. And when man can do that, it, man can be arbitrary. And and then people could decide, hey, uh, uh, you get certain rights, and you we turn into so many bars of soap and lampshades. And in fact, we've ha- actually had democratically elected governments that that uh, devolved into that. I mean, Hitler was elected; he devolved the government into being able to make decisions just like that. And and uh, that's not what America is. America is a republic that says uh, the purpose of the government is to protect the individual and those rights that God gave him. And uh, it's very important because we really made a transition from limited democracy or limited government to a sort of an unlimited democracy, which is what we seem to where we seem to be headed now over these past, especially the past five decades. Yeah, and, and words come into play. I mean, people think of democracy as a good thing. Well, democratic principles are, but within constraints. So our constitutional republic has a constitution dedicated to protecting the rights of the smallest minority which is an individual and and you're not the the majority is not allowed to just vote in anything they want and that seems to be the condition that takes place to, in today's politics on both sides of the aisle yeah. so 
Yeah, you know, power, George Bush. Power, power is very dangerous and it's very corrupting. It's like Lord Acton's statement: power corrupts and absolute power corrupts absolutely. And and the thing about the the what's what was great about the form of government that we had in this country was checks and balances. It was limiting the power of anyone within the state to violate rights, to 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 take power to the point where it was corrupt and doing evil. And, of course, now with this democratic and egalitarian thing, well, we need more power. We don't need checks and balances because we've got to make everybody equal. Oh, yeah, but, but, that, but they are equal. It's just that it's, they're equal by, in the natural state. When you talk, start talking about these principles, for instance, uh, I was talking with a, a head of a, one of the state's ACLU uh, branches, and he was giving a speech, and after about 10 or 15 minutes, I said, hey, wait a second, you just used the word right. So this is in a small colloquium of about a dozen attorneys. I said, you just used the word right, and the ACLU protects rights and does this for rights and does that for rights. You use it about 20 times. I said, legally, in America, where do we get our rights? And he says, the Constitution. I said, well, you know, you're provably wrong. That's not correct. He goes, well, then the Bill of Rights. I said, that's incorrect, too. In America, we get our rights from God, to which he said, well, some people think that. And I said, no, no, Americans think that. And it's actually in writing. And so when people, um, uh, this is not meant to be a theological conversation. It's just the, a, a statement of fact in America. And, and if you look at the Constitution, uh, amendments like the First and Second Amendment, they're preventing the government from interfering with rights that already exist. The Ninth Amendment says, even though some rights are, have been enumerated here, it doesn't mean that there's not other rights uh, possessed by the uh, citizens. You know, so 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 these rights are all something that in our, we have in our natural state. And w the second government starts to say, "Oh, I'm going to give you something," that that that's in contrary to what the American principle of government is, and is contrary to the Constitution. And of course, you know, people don't people don't Americans don't realize this heritage anymore. No, and, and because of it, they actually go not only on an unconstitutional path, they go on a dangerous path because at this now it's, you know, there's, there seems to be no constraint of what government can do. And in fact, if you talk to congressmen and senators, uh, I mean, I've asked, I've asked them many times this exact question. And, uh, unfortunately, many would say, oh, there's, uh, quote unquote, there's, there's nothing the federal government can't do. They pretty much think uh, the world's their oyster and, and, and that the uh, 17 enumerated powers of Article 1, Section 8 don't mean anything. Or if they mean anything, it means that they that that's that they encompass everything under the sun. That is an, an, a fascinating inversion, and it's an inversion, of course, that's come about because uh, Americans no longer hold to their traditions. Which really, when you look at a written constitution, it has to be understood in terms of a folk way, in terms of a tradition in which everybody, every child understands, and everybody grows up understanding it. And it's it's like something sacred. It's something to preserve. It's something important for our survival as a country and as people. And now it's gone. And now where are we headed? And uh, I think what's what's wrong is if the state is not performing its function properly. If the wisdom of the Founding Fathers is no longer being observed, we're not only in danger from our own federal government, but our federal government itself is in danger because it's not performing its proper function within limits. Oh, yeah, and and and, and uh, people uh, pervert words over time. You know, let's face it, uh, Pravda, the primary uh, propaganda arm of the Soviet Union, means truth in Russian, and, and the, that's a perversion. Likewise, today the term liberal uh, is really means a socialist Marxist, Marxist mindset that that uh, requires totalitarianism to enforce, as opposed to 
you know, 200 years ago, the, the concept of a classical liberal. And uh, uh, people try to expunge uh, mention of God. Again, I'm saying this not from a theological perspective, but you have to mention God because uh, your rights have no basis otherwise. So when people say you can't mention God because the First Amendment has separation of church and state, well, first of all, that's not even in there. But secondly, you're having this uh, a, a large logical uh, incongruity to say I can't mention God about rights that God gave me. And it makes no sense whatsoever. So they do well, the same thing. It, it says talks about the creator, and I think the one thing that's obvious is that if you look at a leaf, if you look at a frog, if you look at a bird, if you look at the, the human eye, there's a creator. Something created that. And intelligence created it. It didn't just happen accidentally. And what's interesting to me is that the regime in Nazi Germany and the regime in the Soviet Union were both founded with Darwinism in mind. Uh, Karl Marx wanted to uh, uh, originally... Uh, dedicate his Das Kapital to uh, to uh, Darwin. And right, Darwin, they even had some communications on that effect, too. Yeah, and Darwin didn't want it. Darwin knew that that, that wasn't what he wanted. But, but still, Darwinism was fundamental. So you have states founded on the idea that man has evolved from lower animals, that there's no creator, that there's no divine order. And, and those regimes were regimes of mass murder in which people were dehumanized and then exterminated in incredibly large numbers and, and regimes that were enormously corrupt, and not, not just in terms of day-to-day dishonesty, but in, but in terms of lying and distorting the truth, in, in terms of saying that right is wrong and wrong is right. Uh, and, and the world now, the United States, if it now says that the liberal elite, so-called liberal, because they're not liberal at all, have the same ethic, isn't it ultimately true that they're turning down the same totalitarian path they're just moving down one at a slower at a slower pace well yeah and, and as long as we're talking about murderous totalitarian regimes uh, let's take a quick side look at the second amendment i mean that's been tossed around for uh, since the 1930s where the left just doesn't want to admit that it is what it is and and part of it has to do with them playing with words uh, specifically militia and you have to understand the context of the second amendment a militia was every able-bodied man who was not in the armed forces. So it was literally every citizen. So when, they, when, when it refers to both the individual as well as the militia, the it's really one and the same. The militia is made up of every individual citizen not in the army. And um, you know, interestingly, the the the, the recent uh, Supreme Court case, uh, D.C. versus Heller, when that went through uh, and was upheld in the uh, uh, U.S. Uh, Court of Appeals. Uh, there was the, the justice, Lawrence Silverman, who actually wrote the majority opinion there, uh, wrote a marvelous, uh, uh, single paragraph about 46 pages into it where he just summarized the essence of it. So he said basically, to summarize, we can con- conclude that the Second Amendment protects an individual right to keep and bear arms. That right existed prior to the formation of the new government under the Constitution and was premised on the private use of arms for activities such as hunting and self-defense the latter being understood as resistance to either private lawlessness or the depredations of a tyrannical government or threat from abroad. So so basically, that's a quote I just read. So the, 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 of, of, of the majority opinion uh, back March 9th of 2007 uh, of what became D.C. Heller in the, versus Heller in the Supreme Court. So he, he, he's, he, Silverman reread all the Federalist papers and went through uh, uh, all the original intent material associated with 
the Second Amendment. And he's and he's he's very stating this federal judge that this right to bear arms precedes the gov- our government and the Constitution, meaning it came from God. You know, you, you were born with it in the natural state. You have a right to defend yourself. And that he's, he's saying that the real purpose of you having those arms is to, quote, protect against the depredations of a tyrannical government, meaning U.S. government. So so as Jefferson said, those the, the, those right to bear arms are to keep our own government in check. Yeah, that's that's a sobering thought. And, of course, it is the ultimate check. Uh, in terms of checks and balances, and it's built into the Constitution intentionally by the Founding Fathers to preserve liberty. Oh, yeah, and at least uh, the left uh, uh, accepted uh, uh, this to at least be honest in the argument. You know, people like Harvard's Alan Dershowitz now Dershowitz now readily admit that uh, after reading Silberman's opinion that he's been wrong all these years. There's You can go Google that up, but Dershowitz was interviewed at the time when this came out, and I know... Uh, um, uh, uh, Benjamin uh, Whittles, who was a uh, Brookings Institute guest scholar, uh, he was at least honest when he admitted that you know the Second Amendment is one of the clearest statements of rights in the Constitution, and, and rather than uh, resorting to uh, uh, intellectual gym- gymnastics to make the words not mean what they say, at least he's he's an honest liberal saying we should debate whether or not we want to actually have that as a right. Uh, but again, he's missing the point because you can't argue. It's not, you're not it's not yours to debate. You know, we were born with the right. You know, when life got breathed into us, that's where we got the right from. Not, it's not from a government. Right. And, and of course, that's, that's fundamental to knowing who we are as Americans, where we came from, what our beliefs were, what our institutions were built upon. And now what they've been trying to do, this liberal, quiet revolution that's been going on the past hundred years in, in American academia and, and in the culture they're basically telling us that all these things are wrong, that we're really something else, that they're creating a kind of, I hate to use the term, but a, a sort of Soviet America is really what they're headed for, where um, equality of condition rather than equality before God or before the law is the objective, and that they're, they basically deprecate the majority white European history and traditions in saying that through multiculturalism, we don't really, we have all the traditions of all the people. You know, there's Kwanzaa and there's, there's the, the, the Muslim holy days and there's, there's this and that. And even Wiccans are now allowed to, uh, to have a place in the uh, U.S. Armed Forces, um, w- Wiccan priests or whatever they call themselves. So that it's, it's our traditions in every single aspect have been sort of done away with and overridden. And so now, in what sense are we changed now? Are we not who we are? Well, when you forget who you are, you you, you don't have a a logical basis or a moral basis to defend who you are. So right now, uh, you know, I I personally know who I am as an American and what American principles are. And I know that not only are they defensible, but they're defensible as superior principles. But when you have the mass that doesn't know it, then you end up saying, well, should I submit to a North American Union? Should I submit to Sharia law? Should, should I submit to a global Soviet system, which was always the goal of the Soviet Union? And and uh, you have, unfortunately, uh, uh, many, many citizens, millions of citizens that can't uh, understand the difference nor make an intellectual argument for uh, American principles. 
Yeah, I get yeah, a, and, and you're doomed when that happens. I, I get a lot of emails from people who are Americans, and they are railing at me for being um, a nationalistic or for supporting the USA, which is some kind of evil formation. That I, I've had it called a cancer on the international community. The United States is sort of like a tumor that has to be removed. And these are Americans saying this, and they, they sort of think of themselves as global citizens, which always baffles me because I thought, you know, global citizen, who's protecting that? Who is, who is defending global citizenship? There's no such thing as a global citizen. You're an American. And if these other tribes, some of them armed and led by uh, bloodthirsty dictators, want to eradicate you, and the weapons exist for such eradication, you are behaving like a lunatic to, to disarm yourself and to say that you don't even have the right to exist. And yet this is what Americans and what American policymakers even allow into their thinking. It, 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 it's it's uh, totally self-destructive. So so uh, if you look at um, uh, say the the threats of Islam, I mean, if, a, an honest assessment of Islam is to take it on the face value of what its doctrine says. And in yeah. fact, and that's knowing America, your that's knowing your enemy. That's what what we're gonna what we need to talk about next is all right. Let's talk about the Islamic enemy. Is Islam the enemy of the United States? Having defined the United States. Uh, and what it is as this country with the traditions going back to the founding fathers and our rights given to us by our creator, what is, what is Islam and is it a threat and is it an enemy? Uh, it, it's both. And, and rather, let me, let me just back up. There's, there's an actual um, uh, 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 army field manual titled The Intelligence Preparation of the Battlefield. And it, and this is, uh, it states that the, a professional military officer must, uh, bef when they engage an enemy, prepare a threat doctrine of the enemy. And that it further states in this field manual that the starting point is the threat doctrine that the enemy says is their, is their doctrine. So with, with Adolf Hitler, you don't get to say, hey, Mein Kampf's a crazy document. We don't, that doesn't make any sense. No, no. The, the Nazi threat, uh, professed its own doctrine in Mein Kampf, and it turned out to be Hitler was a man of his word. He, that's what he was going to implement, and that was the starting point uh, for the intelligence preparation of the battlefield of the IPB. So uh, in, in in America today, uh, uh, at a strategic level, we've refused to produce an enemy threat doctrine. There was there was a fellow named Steve Coughlin, who um, uh, was a uh, probably he's probably America's leading. Uh, expert on the uh, uh, Islamic laws of jihad. That's who's not a Muslim. He's an attorney and an intelligence officer, and uh, he he had the temerity to actually uh, uh, do uh, conduct himself according to the, the professional standards an intelligence officer is supposed to conduct himself in, and prepared an enemy threat doctrine of uh, of uh, Islam, and uh, uh, and taken in its face value. It, it, it's 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 in co contradiction to those American principles in the Constitution. So uh, at its at its very basis, if you look at uh, uh, those American principles we talked about, that humans are created equal and that we all have these natural rights, at its basis, uh, Sharia law, on the other hand, is based uh, not on that logic or belief in natural equality. It's based on a religious custom uh, that's designed to elevate believers over non-believers. Uh, which is uh, contrary to American principles. And of course, Likewise, the Quran is therefore a political document, not just a religious document, and it is it is politically prescribing how Muslims are to regard uh, political questions. 
Oh, and it's also a military doctrine. You know, a Pakistani Brigadier General, S.K. Malik, M-A-L-I-K, uh, wrote in 1979 the Quranic concept of war. And he laid out the those uh, doctrines, uh, not like um, uh, Clausewitz says, here's how you conduct war. He's going, no, no, this is how Allah says to conduct war. And, uh, uh, and it, it's documents like that that you need to look at as well as the Quran, as well as uh, books like Reliance of the Traveler uh, that uh, uh, will uh, uh, tell you uh, exactly what um, uh, the enemy is that you're up against. And, and, and just as a little side note from Islam, there's, there's issues in Islam. For instance, they have a doctrine of taqiyah, which is dissimulation. And, and that means that not only can a Muslim lie to a non-Muslim, he's required to deceive a non-Muslim uh, at least he put the faith or another Muslim at a disadvantage. So you have um, Yai Emmerich, who's a American convert who writes textbooks. He wrote uh, Idiot's Guide to uh, Islam, which if you look up under Jihad, it says that's a personal struggle. You know, nice, soft, uh, squishy, philosophical concept. But if you look at uh, uh, a book he wrote entitled What is Islam, which is a seventh grade textbook used in mosques-based schools across America, uh, that book uh, has uh, a main uh, battle tank as the graphic and says that there's no greater honor than to die in the kinetic warfare of jihad. So it, it's two, two, two drastically different meanings. Even so, them, so let me get this right. According to standard Islamic dogma or doctrine, they are at war with the non-Islamic world. Is that correct? Oh yeah, it's it's by definition. Jihad, Islam means submission to Allah, and and there's uh, there's the, the the entire world is is uh, uh, broken into those who have submitted to Allah and and everyone else we're at war with. So when they when they say Islam is a religion of peace, uh, by definition, this is a this is a, a devious play on words. In Islam, you, there is no peace unless you've submitted to Allah, and if you've not submitted to Allah, you're by definition in a state of war. And submitting to Allah means saying there is one God and Muhammad was his prophet, which means you embrace the Quran and all these doctrines, and then you are part of the army of the believers, the nation of Islam, that is marching forward to convert the entire world. Well, it's more than saying there's one God. It just says that there's this one God who is Allah, who is actually not the God of the Bible or of the Judeo-Christian principles that are the basis for American principles. Two different, uh, two, two different uh, 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 beings in terms of nature and other aspects. And so, if you look at the, so the claim that the God that the Muslims worship is the same one that the Christians and the Jews worship is is not a true claim. No, and and, and a Muslim would tell you that. You know, because they they think we're polytheists because of the Trinity. Mm. You know, if you're a Christian, uh, but. Uh, but in terms of uh, not only jihad, you know, another form, another example of dissimulation. When the Pope spoke at Regnansburg and quoted the medieval theologian, uh, where um, he said that uh, anything that's good in Islam was uh, derived from Judeo-Christian scriptures, and everything else is violent. And in response to that, of course, you can't call us violent, so we're going to burn uh, convents and murder nuns, and <laughs> there was global mayhem because of that. But in, in, in January of 07, we're not violent; we're just going to kill you. All right, it's, it's like it's like in the uh, it's like the Soviets today or the Russians. They, you know, we, we uh, the Poles would like us to put ballistic missile defense systems in Poland. They go, hey, we don't we don't pose a threat to you 
and to prove it, we're going to point nuclear missiles at you and include you in the targeting because how dare you uh, have the temerity to actually use uh, 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 kinetic kill vehicles to shoot down missiles. Yeah, that's you know, right. Yeah, yeah, it's yeah, it's, it's pretty incredible. Yeah. There's a bitter irony there. Yeah. So, so Islam is, which has been an enemy of the West and an enemy of the of Christendom for uh, more than a millennium, is is out there as an enemy. And you just mentioned the Russians. How how do we know the Russians are our enemy now? And 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 how come we're not hearing straightforward talk out of Washington and London and Paris and Berlin that look, the Russians are a threat. The Russians are the enemy. It, it, two things, wish, wishful thinking and a lack of strategic comprehension. Uh, uh, there's many that could argue, and, and some argue it very uh, 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 very factually, that the entire, quote, collapse of the Eastern Bloc nations as well as uh, um, uh, the Soviet Union was orchestrated by the intelligence services. And, and people that were in the know that were working on the NSC, that were working in the intelligence community at the time, uh, if they're honest, they, they know that's exactly the case. You know, it was it was the Romanian uh, intelligence service that, that that dished the Ceausescu's up to a firing squad. It was all show, and and those intelligence services all retained power. So uh, right now, uh, no one wants to. For instance, you know, we may be in a conflict with Iran soon, and uh, no one wants to face up to the fact that the reason why Iran's an emerging nuclear threat is because Russia and China want them to be. So, we're, you know, we're in denial. There's a cognitive dissonance that doesn't want to recognize the many um, uh, pre war preparations that nations like Russia and China make. And they're considerable uh, because we, we, we want to embrace them and be at peace with them. But, the, but there's no peace. And, and in fact, in their, own, in their own writings, in their own military doctrine, in their own intelligence activities, uh, they haven't changed from at all from the Cold War. They just, you know, Russia professed that they don't exist anymore, and we bought it at face value. The Chinese never even made such a profession. They never said that, hey, we're not, we're not, we're not an evil communist regime anymore. They just, uh, they just said, trade with us, and uh, while you're trading with us, we'll smile or something like that. And, and there's, it's, it, it's just an incredible lack of, uh, of, uh, of uh, prudence on America's part, and, yeah. and part of that. Yeah, I was amazed that, that in the book Comrade J, which is about this uh, Sergei Tretyakov, the, the defector who defected from the Russian UN mission who had been a KGB spy for many years, the statement when he was asked why he was giving the information for this book to be written, and he didn't want to take any money or any royalties or anything, he said, because I want to warn the American people, you're naive about Russia, and the Russians' leadership wants to destroy America. More than it did during the Cold War, which was an astonishing thing for him to say. And I thought, he's saying it right there. And, and he's saying, saying that his bosses in Moscow want to destroy the United States. That is very frightening. Is it the fact that people are just too cowardly to face up to this, uh, this warning, this message? Well, not only are they too cowardly, but they're not educated in it. So I know a lot of very well-intended uh, uh, FBI special agents that are working on the Joint Terrorism Task Force, but they're not at all educated in the indications and warnings that go back decades of Soviet involvement with terrorism. Yevgeny Primakov, who's probably one of the most dangerous people in the world today, uh, start, started out uh, as the KGB head of station in the Middle East, eventually rose to uh, uh, to be head of the, the Islamic Institute in Moscow, and, and even in 98, uh, um, uh, 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 Yeltsin made him uh, 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 appointed to some very high high positions. Yeah, he was uh, foreign very, minister. And then foreign he minister, prime minister, yeah. 
Right. And so, so, uh, if you look back, there's an encyclopedic amount of, of information of the Soviet, uh, machinations that, that fomented Islamic terrorism. So when the, when the, uh, Red Brigade, uh, kidnapped the head of, uh, Mercedes Benz, uh, and we're trying to get released the, the, uh, uh, not the Red Brigade, Bader Meinhof gang. And Bader and Meinhof were actually in prison. They, they kidnapped the head of Mercedes to get him released. When that didn't work, uh, they, uh, uh, colluded with an Islamic terrorist group to go and, uh, uh hijack a plane, uh, coming, uh, from a resort back to Germany with a bunch of German tourists on it and beauty queens. And that, that led to a, a whole new odyssey. So if you look at, that's just one example of, uh, the interactions between like the IRA, Communist terrorist cells like Bader Meinhof and Red Brigade, and a whole host of Islamic uh, terrorist groups, including the PLO. And the PLO was pretty much created out of whole cloth by Primakov, and he stood up uh, um, uh, Yasser Arafat, who was really an atheist Marxist in the Egyptian army, not uh, any committed uh, uh, is- Islamic uh, pious man or uh, freedom fighter, and he was really a a, a, a front to foment uh, terrorism as a asymmetric weapon against the West. And so there's this encyclopedic amount of evidence that the Soviets gave them the training uh, through themselves in the Eastern Bloc, supplied them with the plastic explosives, intelligence, satellite imagery, etc. And and so you have to ask the question with the collapse of, quote, unquote, the collapse of, of the of the Eastern Bloc and, and the Soviet Union, where's the evidence that they stopped being involved in terrorism? And the answer is there isn't any good evidence. No, in, in fact, fact, there's evidence and testimony that Al Qaeda is is in some sense connected or a creature of Moscow. Oh, sure. Uh, if not, you know, it's it, it, there's a, there's a very good book uh, called Shpeshnats uh, 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 by Surov, and uh, he, he makes the point, uh, uh, I think, in chapter eight, where he says, "Look, it, it, don't get me wrong. There's bad actors there. There's uh, there's sincere." Uh, uh, national liberation movements in different countries. Uh, but our job is to go co-opt them, especially to the point sometimes that they don't even know they're co-opted. So, so, uh, uh, if, if Islamic terrorists want to do something that destabilize the West and they're truly, uh, uh, theologically driven, hey, guess what? As long as it's in our interest, because they're attacking the West, who's our common enemy, guess what? We always have enough time and money and arms and logistics and other support for them. And if if ever they they kind of go off the reservation, we could always pull back. But to, but that's not to mean that they uh, uh, that they're not going to try to infiltrate them as well, like they did the Indonesian party. And uh, um, uh, uh, Suarto, uh, who who actually staged the coup d'état of Suketo. If I'm getting the name right, he, Sukato actually got the Order of Lenin. He was not an Islamist. He was a, he was a true Marxist, and and they infiltrated him into into the government, and, uh, just like they infiltrated in Allende, and they got Hugo Chavez elected through a democratic process, and then once elected, they actually consolidate their Marxist power, and and they use terrorism frequently. If you, uh, uh, um, uh, uh, Shasha uh, Litvinenko, Alexander Litvinenko, who was assassinated two years with the exotic uh, uh, poison of polonium-210, that was absolutely a, uh, a state-sanctioned uh, assassination because most people don't realize this, but the, the amount of polonium-210 that was used uh, was probably a couple million dollars worth. It's that rare. You need functional nuclear reactors and a, and a very uh, sophisticated radiochemistry group to separate it. It's a very short-lived uh, isotope. And in fact, uh, for a month, they couldn't even diagnose what was wrong with him. It, 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 he potentially could have died with... Out anyone ever actually tagging that that was the cause of his death, 
And uh, I was amazed that uh, uh, for the life of that story over a couple of months, that no media outlet ever voiced what was known to Litvinenko of why he was being killed because he was a he was a, a, a critic of Putin, but the exact criticisms were significant. The criticisms were that it was the FSB that was behind the apartment building bombings in Russia in the 98 time frame that killed hundreds. They actually caught an FSB team setting uh, explosives in, in an apartment building and it was all uh, whitewashed. And Litvinenko, it was it was like a classic uh, movie where, you know, the, the everyone right through to the police commissioner and the mayor is corrupt, but there's an honest cop trying to trying to stand up. And Litvinenko was that honest cop uh, trying to stand up for what they found out that uh, that this was a a Reichstag prevarication, and and those apartment building bombings are actually what propelled Putin to national prominency in the presidency, and also started the Second Chechen War, and it was it was purely contrived by the FSB by Putin. Another, yeah. another. Yeah, in fact, Lev Levinenko actually wrote a book, "Blowing Up Russia: Terror from Within," in which he describes all these things. Oh yeah, and then there, posthumously was published another one that I believe you can still only get in Great Britain called "Allegation," and amongst them uh, was that uh, another accusation he made was that uh, Zaman Al Zawari, the number two operative Al Qaeda, is a trained FSB operative. So, so when, those are very disconcerting, and and if you actually, what's even more disconcerting if you talk to professionals in the United States government who are tasked with counterterrorism, who are tasked with national security or tasked with uh, intelligence analysis, and you mention these things, they go, oh, I didn't know that. It's, and that, that's, that, that's, oh that's, that's really disconcerting. It, it, that, is, that, it is very frightening that they are not really doing their job. They're not informed correctly. They do not take the information and put it together in the right way. And, and most Americans assume, oh, the CIA knows everything. Oh, the, the NSA, they hear everything. They know everything. But you know what? It's knowledge is a funny thing. There's so much to know, and you have to put it together the right way, and it's very easy to go wrong, isn't it? Well, it's like, you know, reading comprehension. You can give a child can read out loud an entire paragraph and comprehend nothing. And alas, no matter what the information is, uh, we our leadership lacks strategic comprehension of these threats. You know, another classic is if you take anyone, uh, if, if you take Michael Chertoff, let's say, and you sat him down and he said, uh, you know, uh, uh, Secretary Chertoff, are you aware that in congressional record and testimony a decade ago, we had people such as uh, uh, Matroikin, the uh, uh, chief archivist for the KGB that defected. You have uh, General Alexander Lebed, who was one of the most respected military officers in, in uh, Russia that was assassinated uh, 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 about eight years ago. We have uh, the highest-ranking GRU officer, Stanislav Lunev. All these gentlemen have testified that it's a, it's a matter of Soviet doctrine to, uh, to secret uh, uh, man-portable nuclear weapons uh, uh, behind enemy lines in America uh, for use when conflict uh, breaks out. You know, Mitroikin even said that he's seen uh, archival documents that their weapons are hidden by Jimenez. And in 9899 time frame, Madeleine Albright asked, uh, Soviet uh, foreign ministry to uh, uh, to comment on this. Uh, Louis Free had his FBI office in Moscow ask for comment. They never got any substantive response back. But yet you have uh, uh, multiple indications and warnings that it's potential uh, that the Soviets potentially have moved 
perhaps a hundred weapons uh, uh, behind uh, inside of continental America for use if, if hostilities ever break out. And you have uh, uh, people like L- Stanislav Lunov saying, look, if you ever hear of an Arab terrorist blowing up a new, uh, an American city, don't believe them. It's, it's us, especially not. So when you look at those indications and warnings and you go to people and say the Joint Terrorism Task Force and say, okay, you're, if, if, a, if a nuke ever does go off, and, and by the way, everyone thinks it's a very likely event, you know, uh, William Perry, former Secretary of Defense, testified last July before the House Armed Services Committee that, by his analysis, it was greater than a 50% likelihood uh, by uh, uh, 2015 that that we'd lose cities to nukes. So people expect this to happen. But if you're trying to investigate this, if you if you don't know that it could also be a false flag operation done by Russia, then you can't possibly have a comprehensive basis to investigate it. Whether that, that that's right or wrong, and and they just don't even know this data, and and they're they're pretty, to a man if you mention it to someone who who is professionally responsible for these kind of things, they'll they'll start trying to get themselves better educated, but uh, we have extremely inadequate education of all the people that are tasked with uh, national security from that perspective. There's a mindset that says that's not in the picture. It, it's as though I I wasn't going to teach you. Uh, Alternate theories of information because I've already uh, uh, igno- I want to ignore everything except what I uh, what the standard policy uh, uh, party line is. Well, it's like it's people want to arbitrarily uh, ignore evidence and go into a, a form of cognitive dissonance because a the path of the evidence leads them to a place that ideologically they don't want to believe. So so for instance, uh, um, uh, there's there's there, not only some liberals I would say that the majority of uh, the the non-military uh, defense department and the intelligence community are made up of of very far left knee-jerk liberals uh, uh for instance uh there's three that are very have a very senior role in um uh the DNI uh that uh they didn't want to believe that um we should do anything with Iran except for d- diplomacy so in uh, in uh, 2007, there was a national intelligence estimate that was written by three uh, people, uh, uh, Thomas Finger, who's the head of analysis for DNI, Van Van Diepen, and Ken Brill. And uh, this this uh, this NIE uh, wasn't at all an NIE. An NIE is supposed to actually be a consensus document uh, of all 16 intelligence agencies on on the topic. Uh, this NIA came out, and the opening sentence was was uh, loaded, saying that Iran stopped trying to develop nuclear weapons in 2002. And if you parse the words, even as you get into the into that one document that was uh, the, the publicly released one was only a, a handful of pages, it actually contradicted itself to say, "Well, we could be wrong," giving themselves wiggle room. But it was soundly proven completely wrong that there's no real evidence that they stopped at all. And in fact, they're probably proceeding full blown with nuclear weapons development and but the harm was already done i mean uh, we had uh, allies such as great britain and france uh, pressuring iran uh, the, uh to to curtail their nuclear weapons development and this nie comes out and then iran gets to hold it up and say hey look uh, uh, uh we're not really even america says we're not developing weapons and that was done completely against the wishes of the elected administration who not only was elected to uh, to, to uh, uh, that uh, the intelligence community has to be subservient to what their policy positions are, the intelligence community shouldn't make policy, but in fact they were actually uh, the administration position that uh, 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 Iran is a threat is the correct position because they are a threat, and so these three individuals uh, who are not supposed to make policy completely undermined uh, the, the president of the United States 
and undermine the truth about the situation. And God help us if, you know, we ever come to blows with Iran where nuclear weapons are exchanged. Uh, you know, these th- these three guys essentially commit committed treason uh, uh, in in doing what they did uh, because they did it for their own political purposes and not based on any hard data. Uh, uh, I'm trying to remember the name of the book, uh, The Wedge by uh, Mark Riebling. It was published in 1993. And in it, he actually uh, uh, quotes uh, Robert Gates, who at the time was the director of central intelligence, testifying uh, before the United States Congress that it's unknowable to, to have been able to predict something like the Soviet Union collapsing. And then uh, uh, Riebling uh, counter uh, opposes that with the fact that not only is it is it knowable, contrary to what Gates says, but in fact someone was on the CIA's payroll for 20 years telling them who predicted it. You know, Robert Kerr and, and uh, Gates, uh, Robert Kerr was uh, the agency's deputy director when Gates was director. Here, here's the exact quote that he said to Congress is, quote, our business is to provide enough understanding of the issues to say here are some possible outcomes. And I think that's the role of intelligence, not to predict outcomes in clear, neat ways, because that's not doable. <laughs> 